Hey, what's up? This is part two of a two-part episode. So if you're starting with this one, stop that, stop, 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 and go back to the previous episode, all right? And without further ado, let's get it on. still the cyan because the power it was just the whole claw thing where i didn't want to go down that road because then yeah, it, would, I mean, it would not even be on the article anymore but <laughs> but, but before the whole claw thing like i agree like if you could gentrification like a lot of these rich gay white people are at the forefront of gentrification exactly and you can't just assume that there's some kind of class or political allies to the people being displaced just because they have unconventional or non-traditional sex acts because some polyamorous people i visited the bay area i live in brooklyn i visited uh chicago and some of the people with some of the worst uh class politics or the most vehement capitalist consumerist worldviews uh leading the displacement and gentrification you know are poly- are not only uh queer people but also straight people who are like polyamorous because i think polyamory is kind of like a privileged thing to do anyway i feel like um I mean, I'm talking about open polyamory where you can have like, you know, multiple partners and, you know, be able to support. Yeah, I seen a commercial for it for a a reality show uh, with that just the other day. Like, okay, this is this is the thing now, huh? (laughs) You know, but but again, yes. I mean, right. There's also a way in which, as as we said at the beginning, right, that this was these was open polyamorous relations have always been sort of fundamental in many ways to the queer community you know, among, right, among all our friends, certainly, I'm sure. I mean, certainly among my friends, especially gay men of a certain generation, for instance, uh, in their 50s and 60s now, right? This, you know, you would be with a person for as sometimes as long as 30, 40 all your life, but you would both have what we might call today an open relationship. It was never a big, it's never been a big deal. It was just assumed, you know, there are these sort of flittings in and flittings out that always occur. The same is true of many queer women known uh, yeah and, and again over the years they've always had complicated relationships or they've always stopped and talked about things as things happened and so on and so forth none of this is particularly new so it's it irks me quite a bit now to see uh, you know again the crossfit metaphor is so great you know to see poly what was just how you were for me for instance you know becoming queer was although it was was about have being in relationships that contested the ideas about exclusivity, but also about property, about ownership, and all of that. But you could also, I think, be be contesting all of that within a very monogamous relationship as well. So, but it was all about contestation, right? So the point is not the performance of a particular relationship, but the point is the contestation that you're always engaged in, which is to say that you're always thinking. So all my married friends, for instance, my beloved married friends, 
aren't sort of these, you know, well, we're not married and we're just going to settle into thinking that marriage is the only thing people should do. In fact, they're always constantly debating and thinking about it in relation to people like me, for instance. So, so I think in our communities, right, there's always this kind of contestation, there's contemplation, there's a thinking through, there's a processing, even among the, you know, in, in sort of very different kinds of relationships. Which brings me, I think, to the issue, you know, the, the question around um, slave play, the play itself, which, again, I've only read um, half of it so far. But I'm also interested in the ideas that be, if you could talk about a little bit about, you know, does the idea of race play as illuminated in the uh, interview that you sent us, for instance, just now, the HuffPost piece, you know, does that actually help in some ways to contest? And, you know, what I would say first of all is that... Are you talking about the Margot Weiss interview? Uh, the, sorry, I'm sorry. I'm talking about the Margot Weiss point as well, but also about, you know, the uh, the one about the dominatrix uh, who made oh, yeah, headlines okay. read bell hooks. Thank you for asking, by the way. Thank you for clarifying that. You know, the, the woman who is a dominatrix and makes her clients read bell hooks, for instance. She's African-American as well. And then there's Margaret uh, uh, Weiss's uh, uh, quick, quick clarification. Yes, I don't think she's, well, it's weird because African-American is a weird word. African-American has come to mean, you know, th th that you're descended from American slaves, but she's actually um, American. Oh, I'm so sorry. She, 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 she's from, uh, yeah, I found that out through a second Thank article. You. So, so, so it, oh, you it, found it. Okay, so it's not me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't your. Uh, it wasn't my misreading. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't your sloppy. Uh, okay, okay. I was like, wait, reading. What? Where is this? She quickly scans the article. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, it wasn't, thank you for clarifying that. Okay, it wasn't so, you, but, but yeah, so we'll, we'll use the term black then, you know. But yeah. a black woman asking white clients, as I understand it, or rather not just asking, but demanding that they read bell hooks, right, before they have sessions with her. And I guess the question for us today, right, all of us is: Is this in any way? Um, um, does this? a quote-unquote sort of dismantle racism. Is that really what we're talking about, though? And I think that, for me, it's... So I think of this the way I think about psychoanalysis. And I think, you know, T, you, you and I had a short conversation on Twitter about this, right? Um, you know, I think of it, I think the problem is that people tend to turn BDSM into something like psychoanalysis or rather into what they think psychoanalysis is. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a therapy, yeah. But, which, is, think, which is explicit in the slave play. Absolutely. Play. Yeah. But the thing about therapy and the thing about psychoanalysis is that it does not, it it's not supposed to, and it does not offer a cure for anything. Yeah, it's so supposed it's to, yeah. it's playing out that matters. Now, whether you come out of a session in therapy, having, you know, you don't come out of a session in therapy, or even 10 sessions, or as we know in the case of Woody Allen, 50 years of therapy, you don't come out of it saying, I will not do X, or, you know, I'm completely reconciled, right? What you come out with is at sometimes perhaps a coping mechanism that's what your analyst gives you right or rather even if they don't give it to you i mean and i don't want to confuse different modes of counseling by the way but just broadly speaking you there's no cure that's offered you don't get a cure you get in some ways a play as it were and i mean play as in for instance sex play or race play you get something akin to that and what that gives you is a way to move through the world differently as you move through it now does, you know, engaging in the kind of race, race play that this, you know, black uh, dominatrix offers you 
having first read all your bell hooks. Does that make you think differently about race? Possibly. Does it make you perhaps less of a racist if you think you're a racist? Well, that's difficult to discern because do you think you're a racist? If you think you're a racist, are you a racist? You see what I mean? So, but also, what is racism? Like exactly. If racism- that was going to be my third question or fourth, right? Yeah. If racism, if racism is exactly. just reduced to interpersonal niceties, right. right? That's one thing. But if it's operates under a system and a history and a geopolitical reality, then it doesn't really matter. Like if if you live in a place where women can't vote and it's legal to stone them in the street and, you know, you can uh, rape three women before lunch and it's no problem. Like, you know, then it doesn't matter that I treat you really nice as a woman personally or within our house. Like it doesn't really matter. And also me enacting like rape fantasies or snuff fantasies with you in private in that in that world is different than one where that's not really a reality for us it's just like 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 we live in a like if we live in a world that treats and protects women from that type of treatment and we're enacting these types of fantasies then you could say it's not really hurting anybody you know whatever Mm, so I would, right, if I could push back on that, though, is that I think that we can't ignore the fact that what we're doing with, say, race play or snuff, you know, fantasies, all of any of that, right, what that does in each context is rather different. So, and I think that I want to give people, you know, so I don't, so so I guess we can't, like, build up a universe, right? And that because this is to me, this is also the sort of the potential of psychoanalysis and the potential for play of any sort is that it is about within a certain context, what does one do in terms of interacting with the outside environment? So if you're in a, first of all, I would say, first of all, I would say, I don't know if there's a world, perhaps somewhere in Newfoundland, you know, somewhere maybe in Lapland, there might be an, there might be a little island where the world is utterly perfect and there's no violence visited upon anyone, right? So, you know, so that was an exaggeration <laughs> for just to make a point. I don't actually believe I know, that. I know, I know, but okay, I, I, I get that. But so I guess what I was saying though is that, but at the same time, I think I'm with you on the fact that, yeah, there are some places that are obviously better, right? And I mean, for instance, to be honest with you, there are some places in the world I, as a brown woman, right, as a brown queer woman, do not want to go. I mean, so because I understand the actual physical danger I might be in. So I'm not saying those things don't exist. I'm not saying that there aren't places that are safer right than other places i don't want to say that what i am trying to say is that even when there are two starkly different say cultural and political environments right play of any sort uh, operates you know you can still have say a rape fantasy that operates differently within one context and differently in another context and they and it performs different functions even in a space, a political space, for instance, even if I'm right outside your window, right, life is so threatening, that kind of rape play, for instance, might actually be a way of creating a kind of fortress, you know, deriving strength from that. Uh, There are ways that can actually, it can do that. It might, it might work differently in another different kind of space. Uh, So I just want to give the possibility, I, I sort of want to open to be open to the possibility of 
the fact that we can't define oh this sounds so 1990s so please forgive me but we can't define you know what shape desire takes or what shape our sort of internal um you know what what effects these things will have quite as strongly as we might believe and i think what's going on so this to coming back to you know these issues around you know the reason why polyamory right is becoming a big deal i think the reason why in some ways you know bdsm took off in a sort of what some people have snarked at but yeah i'm okay with it right i mean the whole 50 shades how many shades of gray 40 50 60 i, I, I think it's i think it's 50 it's 50 50 okay 50 50 shades of gray you know and a lot of people who are quote-unquote actual bdsmers were sort of mocking all of that and i thought you know stop being such fucking puritans right let people have what they want let them take what they want from these practices if that's in the pages of what you think is a bad book so be it but you know i think one of the reasons for that all of this sort of um coming into play as it were is i think um people sort of want everything to be a cure right so they want this fantasy to somehow provide something completely different and i think that's always been the case it always has but i think there's a we're at a weird political moment where this cure has become sort of calcified like if i come to you with this i will leave as a different kind of person or a, or a transformed person or something and i worry about that actually i worry that people are thinking about things as cure where I think what I see in all of this is uh, more of a chance of um, of things coming to the surface, of things kind of you know working around us and transforming us. Whether that makes a better world, I don't know, but I think it needs to happen. I'm going to try to. Yeah, no, no, it does. I'm going to try to restate my point, but in a different way because I think it ties into what you said, but I don't think maybe I explained it properly because I don't think we're as polar apart as it may first seem. What I was trying to say with that example is to take it to the therapy thing. I'll give I'll give a third example. Like if you're a negative um, environment, uh, like say like your parents are very toxic or you're in a toxic marriage. And you're going through the therapy to work through the toxic marriage, like even if it's like exposure therapy that's supposed to um maybe like like you might do this therapy where you, you want to act out the opposite so like you know i think some of these race play advocates or rape play advocates will talk about oh this is transgression so it's like oh i'm black but i'm gonna be the master and you're gonna be uh you know whatever and stuff and you might get that um you know f- good feeling or maybe in therapy like you know the wife might act out something where you know she's punching a pillow and pretending to uh beat her husband or you know she's repeating parenting herself from her childhood but when the therapy is done and in the week between those two sessions if she has to go back to that husband and he's just kicking her ass again or she has to go to um live with her parents again and her narcissistic mother just keeps filling her head with poison like it's like like what i'm saying is as yeah as a cure you're not what you're trying to say is going to do I don't see it doing it. Yeah, yeah. If you're living in that system, I get you. Yep. Y- y- yeah, and yeah, I, I think yep. I think it's the same thing. The other aspect of the race play, or whatever it is, oh, we're not going to transgress it. What we're going to do is we're going to lean into it. So, but it's going to be exposure. Like you know, what, what you do is you'll relive the trauma. You know, but you'll relive it under your own terms with 
the safe word. So, you know, you're not doing the opposite. You're going to be like a black person being treated like a slave and degraded and called names. And you're going or you're going to be like a woman who's like, you know, acting at the abuse and you're going to feel on your terms. But if you're going back in that system that is re-exposing it to you, and I think it's kind of where I kind of have a problem with the therapy because therapy only works if A, the environment is supportive and B, the people are on board with you. Like, like for, yeah, like I have a friend who's a therapist and we actually uh, talked about this. And what she was saying is she says that she tells clients that you can't involve your spouses or your parents or whatever in the process unless they have a sincere desire to, to, to change or work with you. Other than that, if that's not the case, then you're better off just cutting them out. If it's somebody who wants to come in there, sabotage the process, they're bad. Or if there's someone who wants to use the language of therapy, maybe because they're more savvy at their at the language of therapy than you and like weaponize it against you, that's bad too. They have to be either on board or not on board. Yeah. And, I, and that was kind of problem I was having with slave play. Like the play was kind of making it seem like white people just need good explanations. If you explain things to them enough, it was assuming good faith in all the white people. Uh, and as we know, we cannot trust white people to have good faith. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's true. Uh, unless they prove it, like, you know, you cannot yeah, assume we, it. I think, yeah, I think white people need to do a hell of a lot more work. You know, I mean, uh, yeah, I have so little faith in the, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> my, my annoyance with this notion that, you know, are placing good faith in whiteness will somehow help. Yeah. That's um, all about, um, right. Yeah. I, I feel like I've hogged this. Have you guys no, have anything yes. to say? Yeah. Mike and Ken. I've, no, I was just here listening, man. Okay, okay, yeah. Free, 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 free. No, 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 I, 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 you know, I just got a front row seat. You know? Okay, no, 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 I already feel guilty because I, I, I stopped the host claw thing and now I feel like a jerk. So, that was just going down a dark alley that we didn't need to go down at that point. Okay. You, know? you know, sometimes you, got, sometimes you gotta steer the ship, you know, it gets a little off course, you gotta just steer it back. Yes. You know, I don't hold right. Okay, okay, okay but, good. I was, I, I was right. worried it was jerky. I didn't want to be. But you know, yeah, I, I, sorry, not to keep, I'm like, yes, ha ha ha. Now, let me stop talk again. <laughs> Sorry. But, but as you were talking, though, T, I was thinking about, you know, I, I love that bit what you said about what your therapist friend said. Uh, I've actually known some horrible therapists, not my own, but friends, therapists who have not done that, uh, who instead, I think, try to insist that you have to stay together no matter what. And the whole point is to get you all back together, which I think is a terrible, right? Uh, that's a terrible idea. But um, I think that brings us back to, right, in terms of what these things... You know, as I said earlier, I want a world where people are free to explore all of this. And I think part of that exploring, if it's not connected to also thinking about, are we building structural conditions at the same time that are better for people? Right. So are we creating at the same or are we simply sort of localizing all of this so that we give people individualized, personalized attention? whether it's in therapy, whether it's in race play, whatever it is, right? Are we doing that to the exclusion of also working on making for a society where we are, for instance, creating safer conditions, better conditions, healthier conditions, whether it's about race, whether it's about, you know, gendered violence and so on. And yes, I think the concern for me, especially, you know, living in the United States where even, you know, chipping a tooth <laughs> becomes a major, right? Uh, some of us can become uh, traumatic. Um, 
is that we are, I don't know what we're doing about building that larger structure and making the connections between those kinds of internal logics, right? Um, uh, those internal dynamics and the external structures. I don't know what we're doing and I worry constantly that we're not actually doing anything. And I think this is where, uh, you know, this is also where and why the discourse around polynomial in particular infuriates me because I don't think it's necessarily that a lot of, I think a lot of them do seem to be, yes, you're absolutely right, T, about, you know, being elitist and so on. But I think that's also because let's look at what happens when, for instance, you know, uh, a single black woman with children enters into what is discerned as, say, a polyamorous relationship, right? If she is within a state fund, you know, a state uh, mandated system, she's automatically surveilled and controlled and punished for any kinds of even sexual choices in different ways, right? In different ways. It comes down to fucking food stamps, right? Yeah, yeah. even a great society that yeah. you couldn't have a mm -hmm. you couldn't have a man in the house. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, so this is where, you know, I'm so glad you brought up the question of elitism. And for me it's not just that, yeah, these are I think there's a reason why. You know, so for me the issue is yes, they're elitist and I wonder why. Because if you are, right, a person of color of a certain socioeconomic status, you are surveilled and punished for the exact same behavior you know so there's a way in which that and i think the problem with all these sort of la di da you know um uh, these these articles popping up about how polyamory is the most revolutionary thing i'm like fuck that shit there is no revolution going on i mean you know i was just let's just listen to the news about what's happening with government furloughs, for instance. I'm thinking about people who are not going to see money for months. Uh, and I'm sitting here thinking, yeah. how, you know, TSA employees, right? A friend of mine, I think someone, oh, maybe it was a Twitter meme. Sometimes it's hard to discern whether something you saw actually happened to a friend or was a Twitter meme. But someone was saying, you know, they were going through TSA and uh, the person, I forget, they had something and the person, the TSA employee said, I'm not being paid to do any of this shit. So I'm not even going to look through. <laughs> <laughs> like this is where things are you know <laughs> but, but but so there are all these people yeah so what does it mean to be you know polyamorous and all of that i think it should mean something right i think everyone of every socioeconomic status should have the right and the ability to to work into different relationships but the consequences for them are so different yeah one of the things you brought up in the article that i didn't even think of because i already thought about how polyamory can be kind of elite and how a lot of uh, white gay people who are gentrifying are elite but you brought that bdsm is expensive like you know all that paraphernalia like you know like, it's not easy yes, for very expensive yeah and i didn't yeah. even i didn't even think about yeah. that that did not cross my mind and, at all yeah that, and that's, but it, it makes sense mm -hmm. and that's actually margot wise's uh big point as well that's what she found out in her research and she didn't find it out but that's one of the things that she teases out i think really well in her book on the san francisco bdsm scene where she says you know it used to be and what's lovely you know what's interesting to me is that she writes about how i think it was in the 60s, 70s and even i think the early 80s you could get into a bdsm scene with not a whole lot of things you know they weren't all that expensive you could you could enter a bdsm party with you know fairly low-key clothing for instance right i mean it was about the process it wasn't about the look so much and she said by the 90s and onwards 
you weren't even allowed into certain clubs uh, if you didn't have a three hundred dollar whip. Yeah, but wow. we, 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 but you know, you know, that was funny when I when I read that, and I was like, that's an interesting point. I didn't think about it. I went and you know, it's funny. Amazon is like this mainstream company, but you just go on Amazon and they have all types of crazy <laughs> shit. So, so maybe it's changed since oh, then. <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah, no, no. Yeah. I look and there's like lots of BDSM stuff, and and the and the the pictures for the products are just so funny because <laughs> right. it's like wow. Well, for like a kid, I can see a kid who can't hack into porn for some reason. <laughs> can just go on Amazon, just look at the product things. <laughs> like, Amazon so is the ultimate like democratizer for sexual yeah. play, apparently. Yes. Uh, uh, and there are like, there are like five hundred dollar benches. Yes. And, yes. And, and the leather. Oh, the leather. Yeah. Uh, the whips, the yes. three thousand dollar chairs yes. and stuff. And I yes. was like, wow. I didn't and that mean- was not the case. That was apparently not the case, which is so interesting because I think yeah, I think all of you know people who might be wanting to enter the BDSM scene are like I can't afford this I think I'll just go ask a friend of mine to work with me oh but especially if you want to do it as part of the community because it seems like for a lot of people it's a community and it must be like joining the country club and showing up with the shitty golf clubs who wants to do do that That so it's like yeah who who wants to show up with like the the Costco uh, bondage stuff (laughs) and these people got the Saks Fifth Avenue bondage stuff and I think and this is hilarious. Yeah, <laughs> I was sorry, very surprised. Away. But, <laughs> and I think what Wise points out is the connection between that kind of ultra luxury level of BDSM, uh, you know, accessories, connecting that to that sort of world to um, the gentrification in San Francisco. Because you, what you get is a gentrification that only, uh, which is linked to, you know, which only lets certain people live in San Francisco in the first place. And they are the only ones who can then afford, you know, to enter these clubs as well. So there's a, this, that, that real connection that she makes between the economic shifts that happened that came about in San Francisco which also drove out a lot of the, you know, the boho, yeah. of, right? You know, a lot yeah, of players there, who were not the fancy gay white people, it drove out, it's been driving out a lot of those boho, you know, those radical queers, actually. Uh, you know, something interesting about that point in your interview, in the article about uh, expensiveness of the, the expense of the paraphernalia mm-hmm. and how BDSM has basically been gentrified itself. Yes, like, like the actual exactly. practice has been gentrified. Right. Or maybe that's full circle. I think maybe it used to be a very like elite like nobility thing or who knows but that's where it is now one way or the other and maybe think back to slave play so maybe you think okay so in this case because when i was in the audience of slave play it looked like a lot of like uh very middle class bourgeois black people the four of them that were there it wasn't very much it was like mm. me and the guy came, yes me and the guy who came who i came with who we were there as kind of like in, infiltrators right wow. and then there were like four other black people there basically and this was and in one, new york this was in yeah, new york yeah, yeah yeah this was in new york the whole yeah. audience was like was like white but i was thinking like okay so the people in the slave play it must be the same thing this is one of two things going to happen it's either going to be bourgeois bohemian buppy or, or rich black people doing this with their uh ivy league white friends or their private school white friends or upper middle class white friends because the both of them were engaging in this or if it's like a black a poor black person then the white person is going to be the one providing all the money, which then creates a whole different disturbing dynamic. Because then you think you're thinking like an Ed Buck thing. You don't want you don't want like um I don't know if I feel right about poor or um exploited black people being you know 
recruited into a world with an elite person where this person is supposed to show them the ropes now just because i think this stuff can be kind of traumatizing if you're not um mentally prepared for it just the way that woman in the audience got traumatized just from being in the audience you know so it's so it's this idea that just being bdsm automatically can make you transgressive or anti-capitalist but it's like thousands of dollars of equipment lots of arcane rules and gatekeeping all this stuff like i think it needs to interrogate itself better than what it than what it does because what it does right yeah and i think there's potential for that you know there's absolutely always potential for that and i i suspect there are you know i'm not um i'm not in touch with you know smaller communities of bdsm communities that might actually be thinking through i think there are people who think through these things definitely who are much more conscious um so I think that that's always potential. And I remember, I, so for, I mean, to give you an example of things that can change, you know, some years ago uh, when I was in touch, when a group of friends and I were in touch with groups like SWAP, you know, sex workers, uh, pro, the sex workers communities. SWAP here in Chicago used to be really, really white, you know, and sort of upper middle class and really kind of pompous and, ass, you know, jackasses, frankly. We couldn't really work with them. But SWAP today is very different. You know, the sex worker collectives here are really aware of racial and class hierarchies and dynamics and so on. Um, so I do think things can change within communities of any kind. And I think, you know, and again, I think it's, yeah, I just, you know, I, I think none of us, right, can emphasize this often, you know, enough, which is that the important thing is that people have the place to, to, to exercise all forms of desire. It's not that you have to be anti-capitalist, but you might want to be aware <laughs> that what you're doing is not necessarily anti-capitalist, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. You don't have to come out you if know, you're knowingly, with me. Yeah, yeah <laughs> if, if you're at least knowingly right. capitalist, at least I know where you're coming from and you know where you're coming I from. I prefer that. You know, it's like with racism. Yeah, it's, with, it's like with racism. You know, I used to live in Indiana. One of the reasons I moved to Chicago was it got tiring, right? Dealing with the constant daily racism, even at the checkout counter, for instance. But I have to say, having moved to Chicago and lived here for a really long time, there are days when I'm nostalgic for the racism of Indiana. Oh, I totally know it. Yeah, you're right. One guy looks at me and sees whatever, you know, is angry and treats me like shit. I know exactly where he's coming from. But here I go to some queer, radical, lefty meeting and some jerk-ass, bullshit shit that I can't even identify because everybody else is so convinced, you know, he marched with Martin Luther King. That's, That's why everybody mocks microaggressions. But I kind of get it because yes. it's way more, it's way more yes. gaslighting. Like, yes. you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the name sounds a little stupid so people can't dismiss it. No, like, microaggression you know? is a thing. It's a thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm going to read one quick paragraph, and uh, because I think it ties into what you're saying in the introduction to Slave Play. Because after I was done with Slave Play, I got the uh, script and the dramaturge. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word right. I think it's a dramaturge is somebody. What does a dramaturge do? I should have looked it up before I even started. um, well, I, I think it's somebody that helps stage the play, right? They do something to help shape the play, I believe. Or... It's a literary editor or a dramatist. It depends on who they are, who consults with authors, etc. I'm looking this up as we speak. Oh, okay. Wow. I, I was, I'm I was cheating. Imp- I was impressed. I was like, no! oh, wow. <laughs> I have a laptop. I can do this. I mean, I I have a vague idea, but maybe I don't want to make an ass of myself. So let me look it up. (laughs) 
I was like, wow, she's a ringer. She's like, oh, I don't really know. I don't really know what it is. And then he just like, yeah, yeah. Fraud. Trust me, <laughs> my fraudery—if that's even a word—has been exposed right now. <laughs> yes. one, one thing that was one thing that was interesting, right? This introduction in the in the in the script, and I looked at the guy. The guy's name is Amauda Firmino, and it might be it might be Hispanic, but he presents white or whitish, right? He looks pretty um white when I when I saw him. So what he's said in this he writes the introduction and this is the last paragraph and i think it so ties into what said it says is sex work uh, again this is the last paragraph of the introduction is sex work and if it is can sex work work toward liberation from the psychological traumas of enslavement these are the questions at the heart of slave play an elusive drama about the power of sexual fantasy play where submission and dominance work in knotted tandem towards bodily transcendence. They are questions that strike at the uneasy heart of the American psyche and recall Horton Spiller's assertion that American slavery is, quote, one of the richest displays of the psychoanalytic dimensions of culture, end quote. Slave play exposes our captive fantasies, which kind of jumped I out at me, like, like, like what is that? What is that? Yeah. Um, to illustrate the uncanny contours of colonized desire, historical trauma, and sexual entanglement. And I was like, it's weird to me to see somebody who's not black, who seems white passing to declare that um, whether acting out trauma can somehow help oppressed black people. It didn't seem like like that should be for black people to decide. And I don't think it's I think you really have to prove that case, which this thing I don't think really proved at all it just uh just had a lot of raunchy scenes then jammed a whole bunch of like Foucault and bell hooks theory in the middle and then did some more scenes to round it out and i have no idea how it liberated anybody from any trauma really but i was wondering what you thought about uh that paragraph because i wanted to tie it into something which unfortunately i feel like we're going to give short shrift to because we're near the end and we haven't touched it yet but you had a second article that was about Hannah. Hannah Gadsby, Nanette. Yes. Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, yes. And, and what was in, the name of the article was Your Trauma is Your is Passport. Your, yes. And I feel like that paragraph mm-hmm. in Slave Play ties ah, in both your pieces right. perfectly. Because oh, it has Your Sex is Not Radical, which is about sex not being radical, your sexual choice not being radical. And the paragraph also talks about trauma being like your reason to be listened to like that's your currency your social currency comes from what trauma can i bring to the table like we were like i feel like there's something you know what it felt like in that audience it felt like i was in get out oh my god three extra black people with me but the black people were like already filled with the spirits yeah, remember, right. remember remember oh when God. he went to the thing and the yeah. other black person there yes, yes. was occupied by a white person so <laughs> yes, so he was yes, like yes, oh yes, yes, this yes. motherfucker can't help me yes. this mo- like I, yes. I was looking i'm like well these motherfuckers cannot help me these, yeah. these motherfuckers they're yeah. clapping at the all the wrong parts mm-hmm. they are gone right me and yeah. my friend are the only yeah. normal black people i'm seeing in this thing <laughs> and you know? one of you better ride up in that car right <laughs> to the end yeah 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 <laughs> oh my god was- i love that last <laughs> seen so much oh my god. yeah 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 basically nope. that was us too you know yeah. you know like <laughs> one of us was was uh little ray howard the right. other one was you know whatever but yeah it was 
was it was just like that. Mm. So I want to use mm-hmm, that paragraph sure. to mm-hmm. um, transition sure. into sure, sure. And what time we have. Yeah. Oh, your trauma is your passport. Right, What's right. the thesis of that? And so essentially, you know, Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. I apparently a lot of people have seen it, but not necessarily everyone. But just to give a very brief summary, it it was a, it's supposed to be a stand up special starring this um, Australian comic. But it's seen as a kind of subversion, quote unquote, of comedy, because what she does is she gets she's on stage and she starts very comically, as it were. But then she starts relating all these moments of trauma, including uh, being raped and being abused, be having the crap beaten out of her, etc. And along the way, she delivers all these indictments of, for instance, the art world. You know, she she hates Picasso. She hates Van Gogh. uh, She hates modern art. uh, But also... She says that, you know, as a comic, I can no longer... She basically says, you know, these are my traumas. As a, as a comic, I am no longer going to be a comic. I'm going to give up comedy, which turns out to be bullshit, actually. I'm going to give up comedy because comedy is no restorative, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she gives you all this trauma. She vomits out all of these traumatic narratives about herself. But And my point is simply that, um, you know, she is playing into... A, a contemporary moment where women and queer people in particular are required over and over to get up on a stage quite literally and replay their trauma in order to be taken seriously as quote unquote victims in order then to be taken seriously as people who should be given benefits of any sort, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, um, and my And what I do in this piece is to say that, you know, women in particular and queer people in particular, we just cannot keep buying into this idea that we have to constantly be breaking ourselves up literally right traumatizing ourselves in public but, because, but uh, yes who is that ahead. for who is that for by the exactly. way you... so in this case it is for i would say it's for a sort of a normative heteronormative society which refuses to understand and accept queerness unless it can first say oh yes look you poor queer people you're so broken um now we will help you repair yourself or we'll ha- we'll give you you know in other words you have to be damaged for straight people to really understand what your queerness is about. Um, now, 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 guys, guys, to the co-hosts, what do you think about that? Because to me, that totally makes me feel like what a lot of these white liberals want from us uh, black people. So I'm feeling a real connection to what you're saying. Like, I'm feeling like it's it's evoking something in me. I want to know if you guys are feeling the same way. That that really spoke to me. Go ahead, Mike. Oh, I was like, no, you can. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh... I had thought, and I was, you know, sitting here thinking that I just well, well, can't pull it out right well, now. Well, well, I, I mean, but well, I, actually, you know what? Like, I, I'll tie it back to your host cloth thing, because, because, because even with the host cloth thing, like, I felt like a lot of those black women who were blaming black men for um, Daniel, Daniel Host Club, which I never got the correlation to either. Like, like, how does it become about us? But it just became a bunch of them talking about all their personal traumas with black men and i'm like who are you saying this for like, you're not saying it to help black men be better you're auditioning for somebody there's an right. invisible audience for this for this shit and it's not to help black men because these people by their overall personas online you could tell they've already given up on black men well it's uh, almost like you, what you're saying is like they don't really care about the situation at hand anyway this is all about themselves they'll turn any situation into me well, well not just me but also the people looking like this is my entry into right. 
Um, these, you see how these, they do us type of thing. Yeah, and, and it, it reminds you of what uh, Yasmin's saying about that audience. Like, like I think people train themselves to pander to their audience, whether it's right. Hannah so, Gadsby, mm-hmm. you, you know, like, well, like she right. realizing this is what's going to get my foot in the door. Right. So this is what they want. Right. So I mean, I think um, if I may sort of you know jump into this, which is that I don't know, you know, I haven't followed that part of the Daniel Halsclaw um, case, um, the testimonies of the women, etc. I haven't quite followed that quite so deeply. But I can say in terms of race as well, right, um, within the kinds of social justice activist circles that I, um, that I move in, I, I do know it's not so much about women volitionally, you know, sort of intentionally coming out and saying, I'm going to do this. You know, it might be many cases. I have no doubt about that, right? But in general, in terms of the system that I operate in, which is very sort of a non-profity world, social justice world that I that I kind of move around in, it's not so much that people are deliberately saying, you know, I'm going to do this to gain X. Sometimes they are. But it's more that the system basically says to them, listen, if you don't give us a trauma story, we're not giving you funding for your next project. I mean, they sometimes are actually told that fairly explicitly. I've had friends tell me that, you know, was I, you know, I've started at when I'm on, when I'm on panels, for instance, talking about, let's say, you know, the prison industrial complex or whatever, I inevitably find myself with other women of color, you know, LGBTQ, you know, trans people of color, and every one of them has to go through this moment where they say, as a da-da-da, you know, as a, you know, black trans person, I have been blah-blah-blah. As a, you know, as a Native American, blah-blah-blah, I have been raped, you know, blah-blah-blah. And I'm the only, sometimes I've been the only woman on the panel who has just not talked about anything that has happened to me. And I've come to a stage, I've written about this in a couple of pieces, I've come to a stage where I've said that, you know, I feel like sometimes I just want to say, Nobody do this anymore. But the problem is everyone is coming, is operating within a system where funders, for instance, if you do, you know, if you're you're coming up with a proposal, will not give you money if you don't have a few traumatized narratives, few victims to parade. So it is, I think what has happened is that it is definitely, there's a way in which this kind of trauma, trauma narrative the one that I point to is a queer one, you know, the one that Hannah Gadsby works in, within. But there's also a very racialized kind of demand for, for trauma narratives, which is, and here's one place where I really see it and which really, really angers me. And y'all may not agree with me on this, but spoken fucking word. Oh. <laughs> Fuck that shit. I, mean, I, thought you, I, I thought you were going so controversial. I'm like, what is she going to say? Like, oh. Well, because I get a, I get a lot of, I get a lot of, um, I get a lot of people getting really angry with me when I bring this up. Yeah. So, oh my God, I'm in the right room. I'm in the right room. But here in Chicago, you know, it's a big thing in Chicago. Um, and it's a lot of white people pushing young black men and women up onto the stage to vomit out their lives and their traumas. And it's the white people who get all the funding. It's the young mm-hmm. black people who have to show, you know, show up and say, you know, horrible poetry, first of all. I mean, it's absolutely crap poetry. 
So they're not even being taught to do poetry. They're just being taught basically to vomit out prose, you know, bits about how bad their lives are. And of course their lives are bad, but you are not helping them and, by and making them regurgitate all of this because that itself is actually the real trauma. When you have to stand up in public and constantly basically bare your breasts, right? And constantly like reveal so much of yourself, that's severely damaging to you. That's exactly how I felt about slave play. I was like, what's going through the actors minds like i was thinking about tiona paris doing this night after night uh like getting raped and over and over and uh and being called racial slurs and then just go home next day and do it again and for what like for these white people who this is they're gonna sleep fine after this like you know yeah. the one black lady there is talking about she don't know she's gonna be able to sleep it's nourishing to them yeah yeah, yeah. it's like it's like they they feed off of it but um check out look at this article that i'm about to send i saw this article and totally made me think of your piece I, I, just just look at the title if uh yasmin if you could read the yes. title uh, out loud let me see oh this one if beale street could talk isn't it oh isn't it critics notebook if beale street could talk is an important invitation to feel black pain isn't that crazy oh that, that, that headline no and it's but the thing is crazy to me yeah, it was yeah, written by a black woman championing the movie yeah. the black woman was trying to sell movie, but yeah yeah she she was like i'm sure it's a good movie i'm not bashing the movie yeah. but it's amazing but just, that, that this black woman knows what right. white people want she's like critics listen yeah. no, if real she could talk is an important invitation there's this there's this um uh, thing uh do you know what bf skinner is um beha- behavioral conditioning he was the one that used to put rats in a maze and he was the one that was into this idea of you can uh use reinforcers and oh yes and train as usual i'm cheating by using wikipedia yes Okay. Yeah. BF, BF, BF Skinner, um, he, he was uh, behaviorist and he was into this idea. It was called operant conditioning that you can condition people through rewards and punishments to do all types of things. I remember I used to read his stuff. I used to find it interesting. And I was watching this behind the scenes of America's Next Top Model, but it wasn't officially sanctioned by them. It was a special about reality shows and it was about how reality shows work. And they had a contestant from America's Next Top Model. And I found this uh, fascinating. She, uh, they were asking her, why do you guys do so much drama? Why did you do? Because she was one, one of the more dramatic contestants. And she goes, I actually wasn't always like this. She says that when you start on the show, I was like, I'm not going to be one of these messy people. I'm not going to do it. But they used these tricks. And when she was describing it, I'm like, holy shit, this is what I read in B.F. Skinner. Like, like these people doing the show are using like actual uh, psychological science. Like this is what they did. They would have these confessionals and talking and the camera be on you. And if you were saying anything too normal or too banal or interesting, mid sentence, mid thought, the cameraman without saying a word would just st- turn away from you and walk away. And it would be like, yeah, a big punishment. They'd very much pull the rug out from you every time you did that. And then she said like each time she felt like she was kind of erased when that happened. Like they just totally erased her. And then you would notice the people who were being dramatic talking about, I'm not here to make friends with them. I'm here to, I'm here to win or would talk about talk trash or fight. We're getting all the um, camera time. So they were being rendered invisible, but not being dramatic or displaying trauma. So I mean, to go to what you were saying about whether it's conscious or not, I think some people are cynical and, and careerist and striving enough that it is a total 
calculation, which is like, you know, this woman actually writing, hey, here's a chance to feel black pain. But I think a lot of them just kind of, without even realizing, get, get conditioned by yeah. attention or, or, you know, yeah. People... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. no that's was, it. That's I it. was just thinking, you know, especially I see a lot of, and I hate using the term young people all the time, but you know, I see a lot of much younger people when they're activists coming up and they suddenly get, you know, exposure and the spotlight and so on. And I think there's no way, and I think especially in Chicago, which is, I know everyone says theirs is the most racist city, but I really do think Chicago is like a plantation city is how I describe it. It's so horrible. But I see this especially for young people in Chicago, um, where there is this compulsion, you know, you're like 19, 20 years old and you spend the, you know, your formative years being a professional victim, right? On, and on racial grounds. By the time you're 25, 26, you don't actually know how to be in any other way. And so I, I find that really disturbing on so many levels. And I don't know. Well, I, I, you know, I just keep thinking of that incredible scene in Sorry to Bother You, where he's in the middle of that party. And oh, oh <laughs> it's that nigga shit, nigga yes, shit, nigga yes, shit. Yes, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that's, that. That's yes. a great, oh, that's I a great example. Thinking, yeah, I keep thinking of that example. I remember seeing that in the theater thinking, oh my God, this is, this is it. Like, this is it, you know? Um, this is everything I've been thinking about. It was so phenomenal. Oh man, I'm going to I'm going to steal that and recycle it on the on the, on the slave play episode because because that's that's what slave play felt like. It felt like a woke a woke version right, of that scene. I see. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I'm I'm really intrigued. Yeah, I'm, and I don't mean that contemptuous. I really am interested and intrigued by. But I haven't seen the play and I haven't just read the entire play either. Um, and I keep wanting to, you know, as I read those words by the dramaturge, um, I keep wanting to locate myself. Somewhere in the potential of what those words could mean, right? But yeah, it yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If they could have plausibly delivered on that promise, you know, it might it wouldn't have been so bad. But the, what makes it more galling is when you actually go through it and it's just kind of just like smut. Mm, I'm sorry. Because these are really good, these are interesting questions. Um, you know, can sex work work towards liberation from the psychological traumas of enslavement? That's a good question to ask, especially if you start thinking about the psychoanalysis of race and racism itself, right? Um, and, but, but if it isn't working in the theater, then I guess, you know, we have to ask different questions as well. I think it's funny you guys are talking about uh, black pain. As I just thought about this today while I was at work. I got a phone call from a friend and they work for the city of Portland. They talked about they were at an equity meeting and they started talking about microaggressions. And what they noticed was that the only people that were talking were black people. And they said mm. that they felt like at a certain point in time, the white people had checked out. It was almost like they weren't even there. And then it, they started looking around at each other and they seemed like they were all out of breath. They were all angry. But when they left, they felt like nothing was going to change. You know what I mean? So they were there wait, wait. just airing out. How were the white? How were the white? How were the white people? Um, how were the white people behaving? Were they? Were they? Were they giving rapt attention to all the discussion of the microaggressions? No, like no. What they would do is so they would have a guy in front. He was brought in, paid by you know whoever black guy, and he would talk about microaggressions. So he would throw out these scenarios. So what happened was he split up the groups in a certain amount of black people with a certain amount of white people at each table. And what they what the black people noticed was they understood 
understood the situations. The white person had this linear type idea of how things work is right or wrong. There was no, hey, what about this? Or what if this would have happened? Or if you could help this person? It was, okay, this person was right or wrong. And as soon as the black person would say, hey, well, you know, they're giving you an alternative to the scenario. They just checked out. And that was the end of it. And it turned into black people literally arguing with each other and against the person that was talking up front, the guy that the guy that was presenting. It just it just turned into the same old thing. It's like you guys were saying, there, there's a price on black pain. So these white people that they all work with these black people. And what I told this person was, yeah, you know, you guys can have these these conversations at these equity meetings and things like this. I said, but you got to remember the people you're talking about. They don't live next to you. They don't shop with you. They're not related to you. They don't live in your neighborhood. I said, you have this false idea that we, we're not living in a segregated society, but we do. You know, when they leave from work, from working with you, that's it. That's it. They don't see any black people. So they don't care about this. Once they check out, they're done. So and that was something that they had been arguing about. And it's, it's a it's a huge issue in a city like Portland, where uh, a friend of mine had a great analogy that they replaced the black people with Black Lives Matter signs. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> one, thing, one thing I find interesting, I, I think white people to a degree have kind of made themselves collectively kind of sociopathic because to do a lot of the stuff that you have to do to whole countries and races and people historically you have to like like i think within themselves they may not be so sociopathic but racially across you know across races to colonize and rape and pillage and enslave the world like that. Uh, Joy DeGruy talks about it, how they have to kind of, and Bobby Wright talks about it too, about how racism is a certain type of localized sociopathy. I think when you cut off, it's hard to cut off. It's like, you know, if you numb your ability to feel pain, you kind of numb your ability to feel pleasure too. Like, like, like you can't anesthetize yourself and only cut off. And the same thing with your body. It's not easy to just do something in one corner of the house and have it not affect the other corner of the house. Like, you know, so I think by doing that, white people to a degree kind of almost lost their ability to even connect to each other. Because when you deaden your empathy that much, which I think racism and colonialism and imperialism does, I think they've lost the ability to even, and I think that's where a lot of that cuckold porn comes from that they're so into. Like they're imagining themselves fucking a white woman with a black dick, with a black body, you know, because they they feel like they've lost that kind of id in themselves. Like like people of color kind of have become their extension of themselves. Like they, they've used an extension, like, you know, uh, their id, their, their, um, you know, like, like you, like the whole magical Negro, the Negro spiritual, you know, like how our church is boring. Let's go to your church. You guys know how to feel better. You guys suffer at a deeper level. Yeah, the you food guys, better. Yeah. You guys yeah. dance better. <laughs> we, we'd rather dance like you, like, right. like they use us as almost to feel because because that's what narcissists and sociopaths do they use other people to feel their feelings and that was and that was one of the things that like i was telling you guys earlier when i was in that marriage and intimacy class in undergrad one of the main sticking points that they talked about in that class was the idea that so much porn has really dark-skinned men huge penis and the white girl is like ah you know she's scared you know like they they see themselves as that guy in some i don't even know how to explain that because that's not my field uh, um tony tony morrison has a 
book that I read, but it's actually, I think she edited it. I don't think she wrote this thing, but it's all about different people writing about the psychodynamics of the OJ case. And one of the she said, she talks about two things. One is called Mandingoism, right? And the second thing is called Maplethorpeism. Maplethorpeism is the gay version of Mandingoism. Uh, so like where Mandingoism is like the black buck and the uh, white woman or whatever. The Maplethorpeism is like Roger Maplethorpe, his his picture, Robert Maplethorpe. And you mean the, the black, relationship, the, the polyester photograph. Yeah, the relation. I don't know. I don't know the exact names, but I remember the controversy behind them where it's um a black body and a white a white body, both male engaged oh, okay, in that okay. homosexual um acts that involve fisting and all this stuff. And a lot of people thought thought it was kind of exploitative, like using the black gay person as like the white person's sex toy. But I mean, mandingoism is um. Uh, the same thing, but the theory that the person posited, and I hope I remember this correctly, was uh, slave play had both. They had both Maplethorpeism and Bandingoism, but the theory was that for the white person, the cuckold sex was a homoerotic because part of it was you imagine yourself uh, having sex with the black man. Number two, you imagine yourself having sex as the black man. So you're having sex with a white woman, and specifically having sex with a white woman as a black man, but also the black man's also an object. There's a homoerotic um, aspect of it. You know, sports fandom has it too. This kind of idea of like, you're you're also imagining yourself having sex with the black man. And then there was a third aspect to it that I can't remember. It's like sex with the black man, sex as, no, sex with the black man, sex as a black man. I think the third aspect might have been specifically sex with a white woman as a black man, because they have their own complicated relationship with white women right now. There's a civil war that people don't really appreciate between white men and white women that you they can only get, that. yeah. I mean, but I was wondering though, you know, you brought up Maplethorpe and I was also thinking about what you said about um, slave play and the fact of, you know, what if you asked, what effect might it have, right? On the actors playing these roles night after night, right? And I'm wondering if we can, um, because Maplethorpe's kind of, I think, ex- like, relationships with his black models and with his black lovers was i forget who were the name kubina mercer yes kubina mercer wrote two essays about mabel thorpe's uh, photographs and kubina mercer is a black british critic who wrote two the first essay was the one where he said you know this particularly the one with the penis uh, popping out of the polyester pants you know it's, it's basically a giant black penis popping out of the trousers um and he wrote two essays the first one uh, was very critical of Maplethorpe. And the second one, he actually revised what he said um, and sort of made that more complicated. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is that I worry, though, about how we think about, I think there's a sort of complicated relationship between what we might perhaps very simply sort of call what's going on in life, right? Which is to say the kind of racial degradation that many of us face on a daily basis, um, which is often a sexual degradation, right? Um, When we transfer that, though, or when we sort of take it and we render it into a representation, it feels to me like that gets more kind of complicated in a way. And I don't mean to say complicated in a way that, you know, brushes everything under the rug, right? Sort of like Facebook relationships, you know, it's complicated. I'm not going to tell you about it. But I do mean that the representation of something, I feel like has a way of operating in a different set of dynamics than what we talk about 
in terms of what happens in real life. So I'm thinking about the meetings that I think Ken or was it Michael was talking about the meetings, right? Where, you know, a group of what black people have to constantly go on and look, microaggression, microaggression, and no one's actually listening. And they're all checking out and going back to their, you know, segregated, basically segregated lives again. And the representation of that though, right? Um, and how you might represent that as either a white artist or a black artist or, you know, any other. It seems to me that we need to sort of think about those two things differently. So my concern is about sort of conflating representation, how, wh- where we take that representation from. Um, y- Does that Yasmin, make sense? Yes, uh, you know what? This might help you uh, because I could be butchering it. I read it a while ago. I found the passage. It's only like three paragraphs. Uh, I can read it for you if you want. It's very quick. Because that way, it might help you crystallize your um, debates because I might actually be representing it wrong. This is what it's it's from a book called Birth of a Nationhood, Gay Script and Skeptical in the O.J. Simpson case. And then this is what it says. But there's another aspect to the syndrome that is, if anything, even more unspeakable. White male desire for the black male body or what I have decided to call Maplethorpeism in honor of the white gay photographer Robert Maplethorpe, whose studies of nude black men are legendary for their homoerotic fetishizing of the black male body especially the penis. I mean by Maplethorpeism something more than mere homoeroticism, however. I mean the term to identify an appetite that doesn't start or stop with simply gazing, but that acts out its desire in passionate, even violent deferral. White men's sexual desire for and exploitation of black women is historically manifest. Their erotic desire for black men, however, is equally well covered up. So much so, in fact, that it most often masquerades as both hyper-heterosexuality and rabid racism. What I am suggesting then is that not only does homophobia mask homophilia, as many have long maintained, but negrophobia masks negrophilia in the much the same way. It is this implied literalness that has made the term nigger lover such fighting words among white men. The multiple repressions and displacements involved in both mandingoism and maplethorpism are, of course, of Freudian proportions, but they also point out just how self-absorbed Freud really was. His phallocentric theory of female penis envy arises from a displacement only a man could make. Only a man could look at his own penis and assume that a woman would want to own it, wear it, have it. Only a white man could look at a black man's penis and assume that his white woman would want to have it. Quote, projecting his own desire onto the Negro, end quote, Fanon wrote, the white man behaves as if the Negro really had those desires. This dis- this displacement represents the ultimate intentional fallacy, spelled as a pun, P-H-A-L-L-U-S-Y. White men project their own latent desire for the black male penis onto white women. Like the idea is that the, right. they actually want the black penis and they blame no, the white definitely. women for wanting no, it. No, I, I see all yeah, of that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and punish black men for a desire that is right. finally their own, to fuck a black man, to fuck like a black man, and to fuck white women with the black penis. So, so, so that's the three things I couldn't forget, that I couldn't remember. To fuck a black man, to fuck like a black man, and to fuck a white woman with the black penis. Does that reinforce or allay or, or allay yeah, your concerns? I would say, you know, I would, I see where she's coming from. I think I, 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 uh, I differ from her on matters around Freud, although I can't speak as an expert, but I would also say, I feel like the Maplethorpe, and I'm, I'm really now vividly seeing that penis image in my head. I, I feel like there is a way in which 
I wouldn't call it a radical potential, but there is a way in which it's there's to me there's a possibility of Maplethorpe actually pointing to the ways in which whiteness wants to absorb the black phallus. You know? So to me it is in some ways I'm thinking about that particular image and it is about reenacting that drama of possession. Um, and I want to lay open the possibility of that. And I also want to lay open the possibility of, you know, a black artist doing the same thing, right, with whiteness. Um, and I think the problem is that we don't have what I would call a structure of legibility that allows a black artist to come up perhaps and do that. And I'm wondering if, you know, and again, I totally get, you know, your criticism of display, which I have not seen nor read, but I'm thinking about it in the abstract, which is, is there a possibility of, you know, a black artist having created a, a space for contentions around race play and, I think I think it is possible. Yeah, you know. I think it is possible. I think this guy is just not, not it though, it. because because yeah. yeah. I feel like if you could make it as challenging as it would need to be, it would need more. This work. crowd, right. yeah, it would not yeah. be the smash hit it right. was. Like I think it gets uh, by yeah, yeah. because it's just trauma porn. Like doing. like I bet you it exists. Right. It just probably will never hit our radar because nobody's ever going to celebrate it like they're celebrating this. And it also wanted, and I also think in terms of legibility, I'm thinking about Maplethorpe's career as a photographer and I'm thinking about those options not being available to, for instance, an up-and-coming young black uh, photographer in the same way, right? So just, I'm thinking even just in those sort of material conditions, right? Like, I think we tend to forget how expressiveness and creative work, you know, we tend to think of it as, oh, mad genius coming forth from some, you know, internal human personhood or something. But really, a lot of it has to do with what are the structures that allow people to express certain kinds of art in certain ways, right? So when I, so this is why I'm coming back to, you know, young people I see constantly in Chicago being shoved on stage, frankly, to perform, you know, this, you know, this thing that they call poetry, right? But that is the only option available often for a young black poet. Because people don't want to hear yeah. them do they don't want them a to, lot of stuff yeah. that, white, that white people yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, yeah, nothing yeah. more, if I may dare say so, nothing more real than that is allowed. Yeah, yeah, Only yeah, exactly. Only performance of blackness, you know, the quote-unquote uh, ghetto black. You know, the ghetto not, black not, trauma. Not, not, yeah, not, I would say not only uh, blackness, but black trauma, black... Uh, and, and there's something to that because a lot of these, like, Ivy-educated, like, uh, black types love to slum in uh i say slum uh in quotation marks as care quotes love to slum in uh what we've called intellectual ratchetry where, where it's like you have to kind of performatively do something a little ghetto because if you just act like they act they don't want to hear from a black person you know like so I, and i show insecure her constant rapping in the mirror is an example i use a lot or you know they're always kind of doing uh ghetto cosplay even though they're upper middle class and i feel like they kind of know that's what's um expected from us um do you want to add any more um points from your um trauma article which i feel like we unfortunately gave short shrift to. no you know that's fine no 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 worries people should read it uh it's a great piece but i think yeah thank you no no but i think what i would like is for everyone to really and i think we're all doing this right is for us all to think about the matter of trauma and the sort of performance of trauma alongside these sort of 
ways in which trauma does exist in our lives, but the ways in which trauma does exist in our lives in the kind of systemic ways, right, that capitalism creates trauma for us, those are not being addressed. And that all of us, especially those of us who are, you know, black and brown, Latina, you know, people of color in particular, women, queer people are constantly being asked to perform our trauma in public. I think we need to, frankly, we just need to put an end to it. But I think we really need to start questioning how we're constantly being asked to perform all of that. So that's what, you know, I hope people will take away. And I also hope that people will understand as far as sex is concerned, I would love people. I genuinely want people to have all kinds of sex. <laughs> do whatever the hell you need to do. But, here, here. You know, whatever it is you need to do, whomever you need to do it with. But can we also stop thinking that just fucking who you fuck is somehow fucking capitalism? It's not, right? I, I, and yeah. actually, let's do that with everything because t- t- today there was an announcement that they were doing this big fundraiser, the same way they did for Black Panther. The same guy's doing a fundraiser for women, to for little girls to see Captain Marvel, you know, and he, he had all these lofty feminist reasons. It's like, it's okay if you have a charity and you just want the girls to see a movie you don't have to give it this revolutionary stance like like maybe your girls have had a hard life and you want to take it for a movie for two hours you don't have to they didn't say do a black panther they made black panther into something that was going to save the kids lives yeah, you know local talking point please no don't ruin black the panther movie was gonna come to the hood and save everybody and everybody was gonna get degrees and white supremacy was gonna disappear yeah, if we really got these kids to see the movie, yeah. I, mean, I, always I mean, I'm looking at someone who's going to watch Aquaman twice. So. <laughs> oh, oh, I love, I love Aquaman. Oh, and, and he's I- gorgeous! How can you not like Aquaman? Aquaman was so good. Aquaman was so good. But, but, but let's go about Aquaman. Yes, please, let's, 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 let's. Somebody was critiquing Aquaman to me because they were saying, oh, the politics of a climate change are oh, messed up. up. I'm like, I'm like oh. they were not, the they were not, unlike Black Panther, which I think was trying to have a yeah. coherent message yeah. and, and but it, kind of yeah. just didn't stick the no, landing. No. Aquaman, that was just a MacGuffin. They just wanted yeah. to have a reason for them to run around and chase people and fight. But um, do you guys have any, do you guys have any final points you want to uh, make? Anybody? I'm, I'm being self-conscious because I feel like I've been told that cut people off too much no, so th- this say- is me making a brand yeah. new change i'm right. trying no i will only say the other thing is you know champagne sharks people give some money you know support 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 <laughs> you're already my favorite guest yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean seriously you know all of us sitting here for two hours talking away for your benefit support 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 and if you have some a little bit of extra cash send it my way <laughs> campaign shocks you know doing all these amazing i mean I don't, you've done so many podcasts uh doing all this work putting all this work in like unpaid labor basically you know support oh thank you thank you thank, thank you. you appreciate yeah. it yeah you've solidified yourself into the champagne sharks hall of fame it, it didn't even exist till just now but uh, <laughs> i am the first <laughs> you're, you're already inaugural uh, <laughs> member how about you guys are you guys good did you get to um yeah Oh, this is great. I loved it. Okay. All right. All right. So, yeah, because it- I kind of kind of zoned out when you start talking about Jason. <laughs> Jason Momoa, yeah, I don't aspire. I, I go to the gym and I know I'm never going to be there. My yeah. metabolism is never going to speed up that fast. I know it. I know it, too, but I want to be delusional. So, like, I, I know, I know, I know it. Like, I totally know. But first, first off, I'm like, no, no. I'm like too injured. You pass, once you pass 40, it's give it up. All right. Thank you so much. Yasmin. Thank you all.
thank you, Mike Canty. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Yes, ma'am. You too. Yeah, you yeah. too. This is Take care. Fun. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, great. Ta.